0: Welcome to Breaking Paradigms, a podcast where we talk about global perspectives on spatial planning in practice and theory by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchet.
1: Today, we want to talk about China's influence in Africa. Thoughts on a loaded question.
2: In May 2019, We attended a panel discussion by Vienna Institute for International Dialogue and Cooperation, short VIDC, about China's influence in Africa. Since our planning interests are located in Africa and China, this topic was especially interesting for both of us. On the panel, Azezevere, Zhue Wang and Cornelia Staritz, who are experts on this topic, were sharing their insights. During the panel, a lot of interesting points were raised. Jue Wang, a university lecturer at Leiden University, focused her talk on the investments of Chinese stakeholders in different African countries and pointed out that even though most investments are in manufacturing, generally a broad field of investments is being approached. The approach to Foreign Direct Investment, FDI, which itself had a massive influence on the economic development of China, is quite different to the aid work typically provided by countries of the global north. The three most interesting points were When China received
1: investment into their special economic zones, according to Wang, a big part of the workforce was Chinese diaspora, who were mostly located in nearby countries. So the question is, is this a model which could be adapted for African countries? Is this a way to reintroduce the brain drain which many African countries experience? And as climate change has more severe effects and the Chinese government introduces stricter standards, is foreign direct investment a way to find places which offer lower standards and or wages? What effects are to be expected for the growth of sustainable industries, as many African countries have higher standards for environmental protection? Many African nations, particularly in Eastern and Southern Africa, built their independence from a socialist ideology, such as Ujamaa in Tanzania which is different to Chinese development, but still builds on similar values, as well as the additional common denominator of being a place of conquest for Europeans. Which role do identity politics and similarity of history play in creating a more level playing field when it comes to investments?
2: Secondly, Anse a development economist from Kenya, was pointing out several different notions about FDI in general, but also specifically from China. She discussed the issue of special economic zones in Africa, since they are being significantly more advantaged than local production. This de-incentivizes local production and specifically scaling up and formalizing business practices. The development of capacities and skills Creating a spillover for the local economy is instead a dual process working separately. The increase in wages, however, is undeniable, and the investment capacities can be built through this system, but industry development is not underway. The two most poignant observations and burning questions were The
1: lack of specialization and regional value chains, which were pointed out by WERE, Led to each nation trying to build a diverse portfolio of industries, but opportunities for scaling up are limited. What are the true costs of focus, and what is the difference between specialization and monocultures of business? Secondly, even though governments are looking towards formalization as a tool to generate tax revenue, how realistic? and beneficial are these practices on a local level. Lack of infrastructure culminating in different hurdles, such as high electricity costs, lack of grid system, etc., are not a benefit to micro and small businesses. However, looking towards the cost of formalization through taxes, but also standards for workers' health, environmental protections, etc., what is a realistic approach to create a framework for these businesses? What role could investments to the local level play in this regard?
2: Anzette Severe and also Cornelia Staritz, a lecturer at the University of Vienna, pointed out that initiatives for indigenous businesses are still few and far between, adding that the development of good policies for local African economies, lay with the governments, in order to avoid just being a gateway for third parties due to beneficial trade deals and circumventing taxes. The responsibility lies with the African governments, which, as nations like Ethiopia show, can have a very strong hand in shaping policies with positive long-term effects.
1: During the Q&A part of the panel, VERE also raised the tension that especially historically Europeans tend to infantilize African governments and at the same time downplay the horrors of colonialism by equating China to a colonial power. We were intrigued and sat down to talk about the role of China in Africa with a game developer from South Africa and an architect from Ethiopia. Underestimating the impact that colonialism actually had and downplaying how horrific that was compared to if you're looking now it's about investment and in my opinion less about like subjugation.
0: You definitely can't compare uh, colonialism now to colonialism. Back then Is like slavery and, and actually whipping people and controlling their way of living. That's not to say, though, that modern colonialism, which is capitalism, is fine. Because capitalism is also modern slavery.
3: Slavery, when you say it's about lacking all of your agency and your options to do something when you want
1: to, right? But would you then still call it colonialism?
0: What would you call it? Does it matter what you call it, I guess?
1: I would call it exploitation, I guess.
0: Not that uh, slaves weren't exploited. They were still exploited. Obviously. So exploitation is just the mode of being rather than the label on the can that you pour the soup of exploitation out of.
1: For me, like using the same terminology, kind of... Can have two effects the one is kind of describing the horrificness of it like now and then but also to kind of milden the the historical view that we have of yeah. what actually happened yeah
0: so. well it, it, europe is trying to say china now's coloni- colonialism into africa is like our colonialism back then it's just investments
3: um but that could be at some point in africa a luxury where people would actually just be okay with having no options for the moment so that they can guarantee a future for, let's say, the next generation that they would produce in a way. Let's say a company comes to Ethiopia with a factory plan to build that, right? And, um, well, there will be a certain wage, a very low, low wage that they would, let's say, give their employees. And people in that area really, really need this. And they would just go for it instead of having another thing because it somehow promises, let's say, a little piece of land at the end when the factory is finished, finalized, and done because they promise to also go away. It's not just a permanent thing when they come and invest. That um, the, the contract deals were mostly is like, we come, we do this, we invest this much, and when we have this amount of profit, then we go back to wherever we were. And whatever is left in that country becomes owned by the people who are working in there in some form so these people would see that as an option somehow uh,
0: a lot of european board games use the theme of colonialism um like one of the ones i remember i play a lot is called mombasa and it's about mining companies going to africa and taking territories but as you play the game you like just move your pieces around you don't even think about what's happening yeah it's, it's a very big thing that we don't really see and it's global capitalism and it works everywhere the same as in uh, low wages all that that happened in china already and that's why uh, they are where they are now ironically because they have a rising middle class because the world's capital poured into china because china was cheap so now that capital is pouring into africa because africa is cheap Um, although the conditions are quite different and and the people there are being exploited on the backs of currency basically differences, um, currency power. So they've got capital, they pour it into wherever where they can get the same out at a fraction of the price they would pay somewhere else. It's the same everywhere. So, like when Trump was all like, oh, oh, we must keep jobs in America, we must not let manufacturing uh, happen in China. His own factories are doing everything in China. His, his hats are made there. His flags are made there. Why? Because it's cheaper. So managing capitalism is, is a difficult thing to, to do because the free market is free until it's not. So African people have... So EU and America and all of them, they have a history with all of the market stuff. So they have regulations in place africa is pretty much still like new at this global game of of pushing money around so they don't have regulations and a lot of people are in the survival mode so when they're in survival mode they're not gonna think oh we should be asking for a bit more or a lot more or anything they just take the job same as the people who were in china there was they were there they don't have a lot to to do anything with um Factories get built. California gives them money. That's where you know iPhones come from. Uh, designed in California, made in China. So that's that's like it's a function of capitalism. But like how I experience this whole Chinese colonial colonization story is actually different from this just capital factories whatever building in in Africa. Um, from what I hear, because I'm really not that well clued up on that, is that Chinese government pours money into the African government uh, to buy out mining rights, various rights to whatever. And African government, at least South Africa from what I know, they're so young in their democracy, and all young democracies have the same problem, which is corruption. Uh, and it's not an African problem. The Spanish had it. The Brazil has it. All the young democracies after a revolution will have the same problem. Um, I've struggled hard enough. I need to get paid. I call it the rapper effect. Like, I've struggled long enough. I've been shot at whatever. Now I'm going to get paid with bling and BMs and whatever. They get some money from the whatever Chinese government uh come from and and they'll take it they, they'll not think like uh the mining rights here are worth so much more the people deserve more they'll just like take it and they take it personally they they don't they stuff it in the back pockets and they let the mining rights the mining rights is the one thing i can think of like i'm sure there are other other things land rights whatever and yeah in that way you see a lot of chinese business proliferate
1: for me something that you mentioned was very interesting because it also came up in that event that uh, i went to that like this narrative of um helpless african governments people like still being a young democracy and uh, on the other hand most uh politicians in a lot of african states have educations from like harvard <laughs> and or or cambridge or i don't know somewhere um like uh, in terms of education, probably a lot more educated than most European politicians, for example. <laughs> um, and so, like, for me, this is also um, a big question if that is more uh, a cop-out um, of saying, like, okay, African governments are are so helpless, like, it's still, everything is still very new. And I think what you said also has a lot of merit to it, that... Um, On the other hand, regulations, like to write regulations to, to invest in legislation in that sense, to really push forward, um, government regulations is also a lot of work. And so, um, where, where is the, where is the connect? Is it really that it, it's all on, on the, on that legislative aspect? Um, or is it also maybe a bit of a marketing strategy? You can
3: educate one leader, um, form in like as much as possible, as much as but no matter how educated they are, um, there's definitely like a lot of links and gaps in between that would break off, and it's not just about um, uh, how good they can process things, but it's also like the leadership and the process in between.
0: I don't think they even talk about education, but a lot of them are very educated, but they that education doesn't necessarily translate because governments are more than the head of state the entire chain of municipal parliamentary leaders and all the different holders of portfolios okay i I don't know if they're all educated but like they don't appear so they don't act so and i don't know if that's a, a, a matter of corruption or a matter of education but at the end of the day i think the overriding factor is corruption as like my my pockets need to be lined and they try and do something or they have the appearance of trying to do something for the people this is a highly cynical view i'm sure a lot of people will disagree yeah and and it, it, again it's not a uniquely african problem it's any young democracy will go through that phase until a second revolution or something or all the old revolutionary naughty badge people like die out or leave politics and the real Um, concerned young people rise up at some point it's just how history works there's really i feel like there's no way around it for people to complain about it is is short-sighted and like blind to the mistakes of the past like you know this happened in other young democracies you know it's not the first time why because it's in the history books
3: to also go back to like a concrete thing to your question like the narrative of the helpless African government being per, um, yeah, persistent, it's different like how people in Europe see it and how people who are actually in Africa see it. Like media plays a gigantic role in this. Like, well, I've also been in one of the, I guess, yeah, whatever, Deutsche Velle and um, it was, their topic was about how Africa is, uh, how one of the countries in Africa is creating something to solve challenge. And um, the information that I gave and the report they wanted to make was completely out of proportion because it needed to fit their topic in a way. And so um, what information is given out to whoever listens to it is completely different from what is actually happening on the ground. I mean, for example, well, it's not the best, it, it's not democratic at all, but like the Eritrean president, like he is seen somehow as completely the opposite of a uh, helpless ruler somehow. Um, we know that people love him, but obviously there's problems, but like he walks in with a pair of sandals for like big EU meetings or whatever. And that's just not only to say, okay, this is what I wear, but to show his people that it's, yeah, we, we kind of, rule well, and we don't need to look this way and that way. And yeah, the the narratives are completely different to how it is on the ground and what's portrayed.
1: I have this like nagging question about ideology in my head. Kind of going to both your answers, this topic of uh, good leadership, basically, how how it is portrayed and how it is also perceived kind of plays a role.
0: Like philosophically, the East is much more group oriented. If you look at China, China is the big boogeyman right now. Previously, it was Russia. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't like China (laughs) all that much, but they're not doing too bad the way they govern is they whatever the government says goes and a lot of people look at that system and think oh my god it's terrifying all these black mirror scenarios and whatever but really they have the the sort of executive power to turn things around when they like the whole proliferation of mobile payment that took what two years three years something like that Um, from no one having heard of what that is to now grandma's buying lettuce in, in the sort of veggie market with a phone and that's that is pretty amazing um and the air pollution thing they went from like being some of the most polluted to i think i don't know what the numbers are now but like they, they clean it up like almost in a year or some of the some of the, a big part of it and they're building like giant carbon uh scrubs for air filters and things like uh, uh, giant buildings of that stuff as far as I can remember. And, and there's like, uh, the, have you seen that panda, uh, solar farm? though? So, like, they built giant solar farms in that look like a panda from, above. and like, just like because they have the executive power to say so, um, without all this referendum and fighting for voting, whatever. So, like, in, in some ways, I think that system, uh, is very groupthink or it's things are done for the group or at least what the leadership think of is good for the group. And there was a story of like um, the world's recycling all used to go to China, like the whole world. And some guy made a documentary in China about a town which took the world's recycling. And uh, it, it was a very personal documentary about some little girl who had breathing problems and was basically fucked because they were breathing in so much plastic fumes and that uh, documentary got out and then china sort of almost overnight stopped taking in recycling from the rest of the world because they're like no screw this we don't want this for our people or for our image i don't know which it is but they basically stopped taking the world's recycling and and then like now the world has to figure out their own world way of doing recycling which is like name any country that can do that i don't know yeah, so philosophy-wise, yeah, the East Asia is more communal, whereas the West is more individual. Africa, though, <laughs> um, there's all that talk of Ubuntu and community and all that stuff. But like, I don't know, like I do see over and over again that what comes out in governance feels some- like something else. Like, again, I say the rapper effect. I think it's maybe at the grassroots yes there's there's communal thinking there's ubuntu but when you inject power and money and wealth from somewhere else it becomes something else like i think there's a clash between um, western wealth and african values and then people start to take care of their own and it becomes something else and i don't know Like, again, I don't think it's an African problem. I think it's a young democracy meets big money injection from the rest of the world problem, I think, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to a colleague a couple of weeks back. Like, we remember, like, I'm 26, and remember, like, our concrete example of this, like our parents and even their neighbors and whatever, all the whole community being, like, super um, generous about whatever they want to eat. There's, like... Um, holidays there's um, events parties they want to throw every week just so that they can gather and these are like ginormous events they would like bring cattle and slaughter things and everything and that's basically just about saying just come let's chat let's chill together and let's talk about our problems and let's talk about our good things and let's celebrate each other and because of the inflation that actually happened so rapidly things have changed completely um right now it's really nobody really understands that concept anymore especially the next generation that happened afterwards because the previous ones were about the value was about um creating um opportunities so it's in the long term really what exists so if i invite you for a party or if i help you with something then the value is that you are there for me and you'll be there whenever i need you back so Those are building opportunities but right now since everything is in high demand and uh, needs uh, pace with a lot of energy it's uh, there is a lot of scarcity happening and it's about opportunities what opportunities could i get from you that i can do right now instead of what can i create of a longer term possibility with you and that has grown also you can see that in the larger scale of the whole frame of economy
1: right now and it plays a big role in context. So, so what um, do you think is the interest of China in the African continent or specific spaces on the continent? Like you mentioned mining before and kind of I, I, mineral extraction, but...
0: I say that because that's what South Africa is known for. Everyone thinks of Africa actually as a market to sell into. They think of that. They, they keep saying, oh, it's the untapped market, it's the untapped market. So X billion mobile users, oh my God, it's the next, whatever. The fact is the infrastructure is not there. And I guess they're building it because like, again, Huawei and Xiaomi, and there's a lot of that going that way. But yeah, I think actually, yeah, there's a lot of Chinese interest in the telecoms sector. But other than that, I I, I think for me, my neighborhood where I live went from not having anything Chinese around to becoming basically Chinatown in the space that I lived in. It was like 6 years or something and I'm happy because the food is great. <laughs> like it just like boom became Chinatown. I don't know why.
3: Yeah, from like from what I've heard and tried to read a little bit it was about <laughs> for example the case of Ethiopia. It was creating more skill for the their actual um, citizens like they would bring in the prisoners Um, to Africa to Ethiopia so that they can um, learn the skills they would need to especially with manufacturing uh, and with the manufacturing industry and then they would save up and then they would go back uh, to their homes and um, that was the case that we have but right now it's and it's really interesting how much like how many of them there are and like I live in an area called actually Japan and um, they have, a, like, there's ginormous cheat where um, uh, they have their own kinds of stores, their own kinds of food, their own kind of maintenance stores only. And um, what's funny is that I haven't seen any form of integration, like, at all. And the fact that I don't even know a lot about them is because we don't really integrate at all. And that, that shows maybe that the plan is not to, you know, not to build that community, but also to, because it shows that there might be another interest there, which I have no clue, which even like a lot of people do not have a clear um, clue about. So this um, friend um, who is in South Africa asked me um, if there were actually Chinese Ethiopian communities, because they've lived there in Ethiopia for such a long time. They have a second generation. Um, child for example that have been married into the ethiopian uh, family and those second generations if there were like communities and i actually tried to look in that because it's something that i've never thought of and i didn't find anything uh, people are like even confused like what that, that could not exist so nobody knows and the fact that there isn't people who can clearly say that there is disinterest is very interesting
0: so having been to ethiopia and looked at what was there those chinese shops we were in like i'm pretty sure they they are like they're part of that community and they know a bunch of people you you don't know them obviously because they don't integrate so but that's not because there's some chinese agenda that's just how they live they like go there and they don't speak the language so they they're afraid to interact and they stick to their own people. It, there's no political agenda. It's just how people live.
3: Could be. I mean, um. it's also li- a little bit like um, the Turks in Germany, right? Like, there's a lot of problems with in- trying to integrate them with, as far as I've heard, at least. Um, and they have their own, like, little um, space in the city where they just live in. But so, the other interesting thing that I found was that um, because they don't integrate somehow... Um, a lot of the layman's, like, in, in in Addis as well, like, people who are just coming from the rural areas themselves, they have actually found out a way to learn the language, like, so fluently and... Chinese. Yes. And they're trying to penetrate the market, of course. They want to mm-hmm. serve something, so they speak Chinese-like. And that's, like, a way of coming... I don't know if that's, like... If you're good in, in a city, if you are strong enough uh, when you're living somewhere, then... It becomes the other way around that comes uh, to you so yeah that's also a way of looking at it I guess
1: I remember being in Addis and uh, for example the, the Addis light rail it it was completely funded or yeah. at least partly yeah. funded I don't know that like number but um, by by Chinese investors and they had a very interesting like system of it though that the the government apparently said okay we want your money but we want to employ our own people so teach our people locally Hmm. how to construct how to like obviously the the instructors would be Chinese and there was also Chinese workers for like speciality things, but generally the idea was to create a way that uh, would have like an, a longer lasting effect That you would have Ethiopian people who could fix things, that you would have Ethiopian conductors And it wouldn't be um, this idea of needing to either migrate um, for Chinese people But really to have an investment and then to being able to maintain the system um, Without outside influence To a certain extent if there is this kind of project then in my opinion that would not be exploitative it would be you invest something they get the money probably back at some point because yeah. it's a very profitable business as far as i know and there are similar like systems that are also with european investment and then for me this, the question there is like what are non-exploitative patterns when we talk about investment or is investment inherently exploitative
0: I mean, it's not inherently exploitative, I don't think. Because, yeah, you can always pay a fair price for a long-term project. I mean, I think the exploitation is, I'm going to give you money, you don't know what your stuff is worth, I'm going to take it. It's a bit like a game. Like,
3: it is a game. So, so
0: as in, as a leader, you can either choose to make the country better and then you, 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 you score points on people's in people's eyes or you benefit yourself you score points in your pockets like which point which points are higher value to you that's they get to decide that
1: and then we're back at ideology (laughs) yeah and like morals and value systems in the end
3: but from the, the patterns or um china is could be breaking that exploitation pattern but it's i think because they are willing to uh Uh, actually do like an honest business investment and it's not just always about exploiting exploiting if you know what you're selling
0: it's almost like though that the leaders are exploiting the country as in
3: knowingly or unknowingly
0: yeah the leaders are exploiting their own resources to enrich themselves
2: We noticed that when talking about the topic of China and Africa, immediately you start a discussion about power and power dynamics. Rather than seeing China's influence as a pure negative or positive, we would suggest learning from their practices, creating proactive strategies for development which don't reinforce neo-colonial patterns and give everyone a seat at the table. If you want to hear the full, uncut discussion, consider joining us on Patreon and get access to this exclusive content. Leave us a comment with your opinion or interesting facts about China's influence in Africa. This was Breaking
0: Paradigms by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchier. Be part of the conversation. Connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and at BreakingParadigms.org. If you like what we do, consider supporting us and join our Patreon community. Content and editing by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchier. Sound design by Didac Barroso and Florian Frech.